I uh, heard a story about a Belgian lady and uh, she has been banned from going to the zoo um, because they are worried that a chimpanzee has fallen in love with her. Uh, that's right. It sounds like a made-up story, but it's quite real. A lady was visiting the zoo on a regular basis for the last four years, and she quite enjoyed spending time with the chimpanzee enclosure, and uh, it's got a big glass window. And one of the chimpanzees, well, it developed quite a penchant for this lady. Um, they struck up quite the friendship, and when the chimp saw her coming, it would wave to her, and she would wave back, and they would go, and they would talk through the glass window. But when the chimp tried to go back to the pack, they did not like it. They said to the poor chimp, you are not welcome here. And the poor little chimpanzee was ostracized from his friends. And so the zoo said to the lady, you can no longer have contact with this chimpanzee because we need to help it to have better relationships with the other chimps. Now, there we go. Um, there's a beautiful touching story about chimpanzee relationships or failure thereof. Um, it's strange. It's an odd story. But if you think it's odd, it's got nothing on the lady who has or had a relationship with the Berlin Wall. That's right. A Swedish lady, Ayarita, uh, fell in love with the Berlin Wall when she was just seven years old after she saw it on TV. And finally, when she became an adult, she was able to go and visit the wall in 1979 for the first time. And she said when she saw the wall, it is far more handsome in person than I ever imagined. And she proceeded to marry the Berlin Wall and took on as her surname, Berlin Wall. That's right. And in her house, she made countless models of various scales and kept them all around the place. In 1989, the 9th of November, the Berlin Wall was torn down to the adulation and cheers of millions of people, but not for Aya Rita. She was shattered and describes that day as a catastrophe, but it didn't end her relationship with the wall, she said. Now, I don't know what you think about relationships. Um, those are a couple of different stories, awkward stories, odd stories. I'm not sure what your opinion on them are. Most of us think they're quite odd. A couple of us are sitting here going, that's a, that's a cool story. It's very genuine, very real. But I'm not sure how real or how genuine those kinds of relationships I just described are. It seems strange, but I don't think those are the kind of relationships that the experts are guiding people towards in life. Now, maybe there's no chimpanzee or Berlin Wall in your life. But what kind of relationships do we have in life? Because we have myriad relationships that we all exist in. We are, well, we're in one right now, aren't we? Um, we're, we're a church. Um, there's marriage relationships. There's children. There's friends. There's family. There's siblings. There's work colleagues. There's social groups. Each one of us is caught up in a complex web of relationships. Um, and to say the word web doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It doesn't mean it's an evil thing at all. It just means that's what it is. But I wonder, as we think about all these different relationships, what does a good relationship look like? And what are the guiding principles towards that? Because we live in a world where superficiality is uh, applauded almost. Live a superficial life, keep people at a distance and show them the kind of life that you wished you had. Um, if you don't believe me that this is the case, then check out advertising, check out social media, check out uh, TV. They all present this idea of a relationship and what it should look like in your life, all right? And it's very superficial because a relationship is an image or a scripted dialogue or a billboard or an advertisement or a short clip that someone posts of happiness in the backyard, okay? These are what we're told a relationship looks like, a good one. But that is just superficial. We live in a world of superficiality and we treat things at surface level. 
And I guess that's probably never been easier than right now, has it? I mean, it's easy to interact now with people at a very surface level. Um, it's easy to interact via social media or to avoid depth, just send messages and avoid people. In fact, you don't have much option, do you? So as we sit here thinking about where we're at um, and where we were at and where we'd like to be at, we might ask the question, where do I find a good relationship? Or how do I get some depth and substance in the relationships I have? Or, or what are the guiding principles for a good relationship at all? And we should know the answer is found in God's word. Um, we do get distracted by the things around us, but let's turn our eyes again to Matthew chapter 7 this morning. And we're going to find some guiding principles for good relationships right in here. And our passage begins with one of the most misunderstood and perhaps one of the most misused verses in the entire Bible, um, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, um, judge not that you be not judged. Um, don't judge others because you'll be judged. One of the most misunderstood and perhaps most misused verses in the Bible today. Uh, it seems straightforward, doesn't it? Don't judge others. It seems quite straightforward. How can you that, get that wrong? But what does it mean to not judge others? Because the way that it's used today, people use it to say, don't Tell anyone else what to do. Let everyone live their life happy and free. Our world loves that idea. Live your own truth. Don't let anyone tell you what you can or can't do. Just let everyone be what they want to be. Don't tell anyone what they should do. But I want to put it to you that that cannot be what this verse means. It cannot. Um, because as Jesus goes on in his discussion here, He clearly makes judgment calls and he clearly asks his followers to do the same. All right. Look at verse six. What's he talking about there? Dogs and pigs. And so you sort of think to yourself, okay, so, you know, don't judge. But the assumption is that we will be able to judge or discern who is a dog or a pig. All right. So, you know, it seems a bit odd. You know, don't judge you dog. It feels, feels strange. And then later in the chapter, he talks about false teachers. And even here in verse three, he says, Something about taking the speck out of your brother's eye. You've got to be able to judge that it's there to take it out. So what does it mean? Because it doesn't mean don't say anything to anyone. So then what does it mean? Well, I think it's it's fairly obvious, and hopefully we can pick this up. Um, it's about placing yourself in God's shoes to make declarations about someone else and how they don't measure up to you. Do you see that? That's what it says, isn't it? Don't judge because you'll be judged. How can you make yourself the measuring stick that everyone needs to compare to in order to find righteousness with God? Now, to get the point clear, we can think back to the uh, egg story at the beginning of the day. All right. You've got the, it was a parable of the Pharisee and the the tax collector. And the Pharisee paints themselves as the measuring stick of having a good relationship with God. They think, the Pharisee thinks, if only others were as good as me then they'd be okay with God. And then they pass judgment on others as to how to live in order to be as good as they themselves are. But what was the problem with the Pharisee when they faced the tester? What happened to them? Scrambled eggs, right? Didn't go well for them. None of us are good enough in God's sight. We need Jesus to come and bring forgiveness and restored relationship with God. And then as his followers, we have to have humility. Now, humility does not mean that we don't or won't provide guidance or instruction or correction to anyone else. In fact, the verses we're looking at say we should be doing that, all right? But humility says you're not trying to measure up to me. No, because it doesn't matter who I am. You're trying to measure up to God. 
Now, I read a news article this week, um, a fashion article, because I spend quite a bit of time reading fashion articles in my life, um, as you might be able to tell by my high levels of fashion that I have. <laughs> okay. Apparently, um, this is, it was a humor article. There we go about fashion and a luxury fashion brand is selling a range of woolen jumpers under the title of the destroyed crew neck. That's right. The type of jumper they're selling is called the destroyed crew neck. And basically the jumper uh, has holes all over it. I guess it looks a bit like it's been eaten by rats or something. And the idea of the jumper is to make yourself look like you are homeless Now, apparently, there's a rising trend in fashion so that you appear to be more relatable to others, all right? So you you wear this jumper so you look like a more common kind of person. I think the irony is that um, you're trying to look like a homeless person by paying $1,500 for the privilege. It definitely doesn't stack up, does it, wearing a brand name? Anyway, but comparisons. In our world, we are good at the game of comparisons. Our world tells us to compare ourselves to others and to beat them to be better than them. That's what we're taught, okay? Um, you may not believe me. Think of your children's sport, okay? If you have kids, um, then you go to watch your kids play sport, okay? And if you don't have kids who play sport, just think of others who have kids who play sport, me, and I'll tell you how, what it's like, okay? You can go and you watch your child play sport and then you come back from playing sport and you talk about it and what do you do? You make a judgment based on how your child performed compared to others. That's what you do, okay? That's how the conversation goes. Now, I've coached all my children's sporting teams um, at at least once. Um, Yeah, I'm a sucker for punishment. And and I'll tell you, when you're on the sideline as a coach, it's what you hear the parents doing during the game. They're comparing their child to other children. And then when before the game starts or after the game, they're telling you what their child can or cannot do in comparison to others. That's not necessarily terrible, but what is bad about it is the impression that uh, you, you pick up that they don't want their child to try something new for fear of failure. And if their child fails, it's not that they failed. That's a whole different talk, all right? Fear of failure. We'll get to that one now, another time. But if they fail, they'll look bad in comparison to others. And so it's this whole idea of comparison that permeates our society from a young age and, and the motivation um, comparison's okay, all right, but comparing yourself with a motivation of declaring that you're better than someone else is a problem, you know? I mean, you think about the kids' sporting team. Had, you, had your kid go and sport this year? You're talking to a friend you haven't seen for a while. Oh, well, they lost every single game, but at least my kid was the MVP. Oh, but Craig, wasn't that because you were the coach of their team? Oh, oh Yeah. I come to think of it, Craig, weren't you the coach? Isn't that why they lost every single game? Uh, okay, I'd like to see you do better. Compare yourself to others. You see, it's very natural. We compare ourselves to others. We try and be better. Think about work. You know, some people try and climb the ladder at work and, and accelerate up the ranks. Others not trying to climb the ladder, but are trying to have a quality of work that is noticed, that earns praise, that shows that we are doing a good job in comparison to others. In some workplaces, they have rankings on who's performing the best or doing the most or getting the most done. Other places have employee of the week or month awards. Others have cash bonuses at certain times of the year or other incentives if you can produce more than somebody else. Or sometimes there's an incentive for a whole team, a whole work team. If your team does well, you all get rewarded and there's someone in the team holding you back. Who's that person? You know them, don't you? In your work team because they're not as good as you. 
It's the comparison. It, it happens all the time. Families compare themselves to each other. Um, within the family, siblings grow up, they get older, and maybe you've got siblings who you're old and you've got siblings and you're wondering who's got the better car or who's got the better house or who has the better holidays. And the list goes on and on. And we, we try and think about how we can be better than other people because that's the game our society plays. And so no surprise that thinking filters into our life as a church. We think about our church and we think, well, our church is better than their church. You see, it's comparisons and trying to be better. Or maybe within church, I'm a better Christian person than they are. And what does Jesus say again? He says, judge not, but you be not judged. There's a danger in playing that game of comparisons as if you are the ultimate measuring stick because you're not. Humility is crucial. It doesn't mean you don't provide guidance to anyone else. In fact, the verses we're about to look at tell us we must be doing that. But humility says you're not trying to measure up to me. You should be trying to measure yourself to God. Now, if you play the game of comparisons, uh, I've got to put it to you that in life, all of your relationships will be struggles. There will be battles. Um, What are you going to do if someone doesn't think exactly the same way as you? If someone's better than you, you're going to be jealous. If they're not as good as you, you're going to gloat. Okay. There's a fine line to walk here. And you can only walk that line when you have the objectivity of knowing that God is God and you are not. Objectivity breeds humility because you know that God's bigger than you. There's someone far greater than you who tells you how to live and that can help you help others. And think about that. What what do you expect to see from someone who doesn't believe in God? What sort of life do you think they would be living? You'd expect to see them as very jealous people and at the same time, very smug people, very jealous and very smug. They see themselves as the ultimate opinion of life. Now, some people are better at covering it than others, but they become jealous of your success at the same time expecting you to be thrilled for their success. And this should not be how we are. That's not how people are made to live. It causes fractures and divisions. So what does humility look like in relationships? And we look at Jesus' words. He goes on in verses 2 to 5 to explain that to us. And you're going to notice what he doesn't say here. Look at verses 2 and 3. Jesus says, but with the judgment you, you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Now, you know what he, he, he doesn't say here? Uh, let's turn it on its head from the start. What does Jesus not say here? Jesus doesn't say, ignore the speck in your brother's eye. And so, Tom, there's a question here in the chat saying, should we judge people who are smug? Well, Jesus doesn't say ignore things about people, does he? All right. He doesn't say ignore the speck in your brother's eye. He says, why do you see it but not see the one in your own eye? See that fine line? Jealousy versus smugness, both are wrong. Humility doesn't ignore either alternative. Okay. Humility says that we know that sin is harmful in the Christian life. We know there are things in life we shouldn't shouldn't be doing. We know there are things that are potentially harmful for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And humility says, speak up about it. Do something. Look at verse 5. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Can you see that? 
if you speak up, right? It, it, sorry, if you don't speak up, if you don't say something about something you see in someone else's life, then you are being smug. You are glad that they are stuck in sin or stuck in something. And you're glad without realizing it because it makes you look better. Oh, we like to hide it under noble pretenses, don't we? Oh, I'm just too scared. I couldn't possibly say anything to them because I'm no better than them. No, you're actually not glad. Uh, you're not, you're not uh, scared to say something. You're glad that you look better than them. And so you try and share their struggle with somebody else. You, you refuse to help them with it, but you go to somebody else and you say, let's pray for so-and-so because they're struggling with this. And that makes you feel better in yourself as well. Please pray for the person. They're struggling. Wipe the smug smile off your face. Because Jesus says in verse two, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Okay. So be careful if you're not willing to help. Be careful. If you won't help others in their Christian life, well, why should anyone help you? You think you're good enough for God and you don't need his help? Well, no, we all need his help. And therefore, in humility, we must be willing to speak up to our brothers and sisters in Christ and help them in their struggles. But before we do, there's one other thing we had to take care of first. Before we help with the speck in our brother's eye, what was the problem? That's right, the plank in our own eye in verse 3. Again, it's almost a comedic element here, isn't it? Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? It's this whole idea of, you know, you're looking at someone, and there's a a little speck of dust there, and there's a massive plank coming out of your own face here. I mean, it's, it's, it's humorous. It's hilarious. It's so hilarious that it shouldn't be. And that's the point Jesus is making here. It's talking about self-awareness, isn't it? Perspective. What does a plank look like when it will be right up close? Uh, Sorry. What would a speck look like if you placed it in your own eye and focused on it? It would look enormous, wouldn't it? You ever seen something like in your field of vision? You're like, that's gigantic. How big is it? See, humility is acknowledging that there are things we struggle with in our Christian lives, okay? And seeing that speck, which looks like a plank to us, it's huge. And we think about it and we feel unworthy to help anyone else. How could I speak up? Look at my life. Look at my sin. But have we ever paused to consider that the person who's struggling with sin themselves and knows that they are struggling is the perfect person to help somebody else? In fact, apart from Jesus, they are the most qualified person to help because there's only two kinds of people that can help others who are struggling in sin. The first person has no sin. Who's that? Jesus. Okay. The other person is someone who is sinful and struggles themselves and knows that that is what they are like and is seeking to live more like Christ. The person who has sin but refuses to acknowledge and change, they can't help anyone. All right. So humility says that we do provide guidance, instruction, correction, not because we're better, but because we don't want people measuring up to us. We want them to measure up to God. I wonder, have we got that balance in life? I'll be happy to be better than others. Thank goodness I'm not like that tax collector. That's smug. Do we wish we had what others had? I'll be jealous of them. I wish I was as good a Christian as them. Because what we're seeing here is that the bedrock for a good relationship is humility and honesty to speak up and help others. Now, I'm going to finish in a second or two. Um, there's heaps more in this passage. We're going to come back to it next week. I've made a snap decision. Um, I think there's a lot uh, a lot more guidance that it has for us here. But I want to put it to you that 
having humility gives us the ability to help other people. And the areas that we struggle in, we might think of, you know, when I say help someone in sin, we, we think of like, you know, if they're tempted to murder someone, you know, but it actually, if we're willing to help others and speak up, it's actually hugely helpful in areas of sin in communities as well, like conflict and disagreements that could lead to conflicts. A disagreement doesn't have to lead to a conflict, but it can if we are not objective. And if we think people must be like us, if we're smug and think we're better than others or jealous and wish we had what they had, that can cause conflict, all right? Uh, look at America as a nation, all right? Now, there's a fair conflict in America over something in particular right now. Um, and that thing that is causing a bit of conflict is vaccinations in America, right? There are some people who are saying that you have to get vaccinated and others are saying you shouldn't get vaccinated because it's wrong, okay? And it's really easy to caricature the opposite side of the argument and view each other in a really bad way, especially in churches in America. Now, I wonder if I was to ask you, what would you see as the purpose of each way of life, each decision they're making? The vaccinator and the and the uh, the anti-vaxxer. What, what, what are they both trying to achieve? They both are trying to prolong life, aren't they? Uh, can't you see how they're about the same end? Um, there, there's a flaw in each view, though. Um, which one of those uh, approaches leads to eternal life? Neither one, Brent. Thank you. Brent, see anyone still awake? Yeah, that's okay. Bear with me, Brent. You and me, buddy. We're going all the way. Um, so. So you can see that they're both missing the problem from a Christian perspective, all right? So therefore, in a church community, which is the right view? Well, it doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't. It, neither is right nor wrong. There can be some wisdom in each one, okay? And some people might be like, well, if you want to go to the beach, you've got to get, get, get vaccinated. Fine, whatever, okay? But as a Christian, it becomes a plank and speck thing, doesn't it? I mean, if someone doesn't think the same as us on this particular thing, What's the big deal? We can still think differently and remain in loving community and focus on the things that really matter. The, the problem of death in the world and the solution to that through Jesus. And so if you want an honest and genuine relationship with other people, particularly in your church, and it's telling us that's who we should be focusing on here to start with in this passage, you have to be able to tolerate differences of opinion and be okay with that while at the same time helping people in things that are genuine struggles and genuinely dangerous for them, okay? How do I get a real relationship? Well, it's about being humble. And humility says that we should be willing to speak up because we don't want people measuring up to us. We want them measuring up to God. Let me pray that we'll have that courage. Dear God, we thank you for um, your son, our saviour, and we thank you for these words here. And they are challenging to us and difficult and refreshing and freeing at the same time. How wonderful it is if someone speaks to us about something that we haven't thought of the other side of the coin, that we might be okay, not feeling persecuted or under attack, but feeling willing and open to hearing a different opinion. We thank you for the absolute objectivity we have of forgiveness from sin in Jesus and the safety of knowing that you are the Lord of the universe. And so, Father, help us now to have genuine, honest relationships 
as your followers, especially around things we don't understand properly. But we thank you that we can understand the good news of salvation. So shape us by that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.